Hello once again, everybody. Welcome to Looking Back, Moving Forward. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Harris. So glad you could be along for the ride today. This is a, an episode that I've been really looking forward to posting, but have decided to hold off on it until now because I wanted to wait until we have the official results of the election, even though I have expressed some commentary or offered some commentary earlier about what I call the post-election chaos that has uh, run rampant and taken over our, our country, if you've been keeping up with the news. But today, I want to go a little further with that. I want to um, talk about you know, what I consider the danger and the, the pitfalls that, that some on the Republican side have taken this country. I think it's been very, very irresponsible and very dangerous and very undemocratic uh, to observe uh, w- with what we have observed in some of these leaders, particularly the person at the top, uh, Donald J. Trump. As you all know, he lost the election the, the, by the popular vote as well as the electoral vote. That was clear the night of the election, the next day after the election, and every day since that time. Rather than doing what every other president has done who has lost, any other incumbent president who has lost, any candidate who has lost, once it's clear that they have lost, they have behaved in a very statesmanlike way and stepped up to the microphone, put on their big boy pants and said, folks, we, we lost. In every contest like this, somebody wins and someone loses. This year, I lost. And I want to congratulate my successor, President-elect Joe Biden. And I want to wish him and Kamala Harris much success because their success is reflected in the success of our country. And that's what it's all about. We have to come together as, as one people behind one president. And this is what I'm asking all of my supporters to do. This is what I'm asking everybody to do for the sake of our democracy and the sake of our country and the sake of our of unity, of purpose. Let's turn the page and let's move on. And maybe in 2024, we'll have a different outcome. Now, that's what someone with statesmanship qualities would have said. They would have, while disappointed, they would have made sure, they would have made sure that the transition to the next um, president took place very smoothly. But what we have in, in, instead, we had, in my view, a a petulant, uh, whiny individual uh, at the top of the ticket who simply could not fathom how anybody could beat him. Uh, I don't know if it goes back to his his childhood or somewhere in his upbringing that to lose is that's the worst thing that can happen to you to be called a loser and from what i have read about him is that he just hates to lose and particularly after he said so many times that he was going to beat sleepy joe he had all these derisive names and and very critical of of joe biden and and he just thought it was just going to be a walk in the park because you know he saw all of these he went to all these rallies and uh, being irresponsible in the wake of, of the pandemic where thousands of people would show up with no masks and no physical distancing. And they were very passionate and very 
vocal and, and, and boisterous in their support for him. If you just watch it on television, you say, wow, this guy really has a lot of backing. He has a lot of support. And that's what he thought, too. And that's what a lot of his supporters thought. How could he lose with that many people coming out to support him? Well, it's simple. Just because you have 20, 25,000 people showing up at your rally, number one, that doesn't mean all of them are going to vote for you. Never, and it also means that for all those 25 who showed up, there are another 25,000 or more who did not show up. I mean, you're, you're getting a, a, a partial picture of who supports him and who doesn't support him if you only look at those who turned out for his rallies. But it wasn't enough just for Donald Trump to, uh, in my view, to thwart the, the will of the people. Um, you know, he tried to uh, overturn the results just because he didn't win. He went all of these lengths to, with Rudy Giuliani and, and, and all of these, um, Sidney Powell and others, trying to get the courts to intervene. And as we know, court after court after court just gave him a big smackdown and said, no, you can't do this. There's, there's no, there, you aren't bringing anything here for us to, to look at. Uh, as, as one of his, uh, one of the federal judges who actually Trump appointed, pointed out to him that just because you say there is fraud doesn't make it so. And I think that kind of sums it up for uh, how this whole thing played out. You know, if you're going to accuse, if you're going to allege that somebody did something fraudulently, where is the proof? Where is the evidence? If you don't have that, then what you are expressing is something so detrimental and, and, and dangerous to the democracy. Because what you're doing is you are instilling doubt in the minds and the hearts of, of voters so that they begin to say, I don't trust the voting system. I don't trust the electoral system. I don't trust democracy. Because democracy says the, the person with the, the greater number of votes is the person who's elected. When you, you start saying, no, 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 uh, the person who had the fewer votes ought to be the president. And, and that's that attitude that up is down, down is up, black is white, white is black, and gravity doesn't exist. All of those uh, natural laws of, of nature, they just sort of go out the window because people want to believe the lie. They want to believe the myth. They want to believe all of these, this, these, these baseless, fraudulent, uh, th these baseless claims of, of fraud. It's just, uh, I think what, what that, that side did, they, they just instill some doubt in the hearts and the minds of people. I think people around the world probably looked at our, at our process here and shook their heads and always saw the U.S. as an example of how you peacefully transfer power from one president to, a, to the next president and how you do it very efficiently. And you do it in a way that is, has the least amount of disruption in it, even though there are going to be people who are crying or who are upset that their side didn't win. But I think what the world saw and what we saw in this country was someone who refused to um, admit that he lost. He refused to follow the norms of, of transition, presidential transition from one person to the other. And why did he do it? He did it because he just could not believe that he actually 
lost. You know, I don't know who was telling him that he was going to win because if you if you paid attention to the polls, they they always said, you know, Trump, you're going to lose. And of course, they said that in 2016 that he was going to lose and he ended up winning. But that was a case of like 77,000 votes among those swing states that resulted in him becoming president. Well, that was different this time. And he, for some reason, believed that the polls were wrong last time. They're going to be wrong this time. And as you hear him talk about it, he, at 10 o'clock on the night of, of November 3rd, he saw himself up uh, in, the, in the count, in the vote count. And the next day it showed that him he showed that he was behind. And he just thought there must be something fraudulent about that. And the clear explanation that they tried to present to him, and, and it, it made so much sense, it was so logical, was that the votes that came in early were, were votes of people who voted in person. They went to the polls, they stood in line, and they voted. The second batch were the mail-in ballots. Those people who, for various reasons, chose to exercise their, their privilege and their right to vote by mail. Those voted, those counts came in uh, later. And as we know, uh, the majority of those who supported Joe Biden did so. They voted by absentee ballot um, because of the concern of, of COVID. Some just did not want to go out there and stand in long lines and uh, run the risk of either infecting somebody else or becoming infected themselves. So they did the thing that was quite sensible and quite reasonable, which is to cast the vote by, by ballot. And of course, Trump had told his people before, don't trust the ballot system, stand in line. And that's what they did. He said, go to the polls, don't participate in the, in the, in the mail-in ballot, which ironically is because that's how he voted. And his family and, and many other people, they vote by mail. And for some reason he thought, um, it's good enough for him to vote by mail, but if other people do it, it's fraudulent. But we know what that's about because history has shown us that when people turn out to vote in presidential elections at, in, in large numbers, and of course this was an unprecedented turnout, um, you know, with over 150 million people voting. We've never had that in this country. But um, they, I think the Republicans count on a low voter turnout because when fewer people vote, the better their chances are of winning. When there's a situation where the, the turnout is high, their chances of winning are reduced. And they saw every opportunity. That's why you have these voter suppression laws. That's why you, in the city of Houston, for example, a city of four million people, they had one drop box for a ballot. And that was because the Republican governor said, I don't wanna make it easy for that many people to vote. Because they knew full well, if you make it convenient for people to vote, that's going to be a, an advantage for the Democrats. So, and I think it was Newt, Gring, Newt Gingrich or somebody said that recently. We've got to figure out a way to keep so many people from voting. And the way you do that, and they tried it before, and that's these voter suppression laws. But nevertheless, that, that kicked back on. But the, the thing that I, I want to really emphasize here is that the damage and the potential damage, uh, and we won't know until years down the road, history uh, history books will tell us about the, the negative impact that the behavior of Donald Trump and his Republican supporters 
those 126 members of the House of Representatives, those 18 state attorneys general who went to the Supreme Court asking the Supreme Court to nullify the votes of uh, voters in four states, which if anybody understood the Constitution, understood how election laws work, federal versus state, because all the elections are handled, these are state issues, not federal issues. But you know, they, they, they went down this road thinking, you know, they call it a Hail Mary pass. They were so desperate. They knew this was not right. And, but they, that didn't keep them from putting their names on this list, this filing this amicus brief, this friend of the court brief, supporting Ken Paxton, the attorney general from Texas, supporting him in this, this ludicrous, idiotic um, idea that the Supreme Court should nullify the votes in those four states. I mean, it's, it, it defies logic. It defies um, the history of jurisprudence in this country. And, and I think those persons who are lawyers, who signed that letter, who bought onto this myth that this was a, a, a right action to take, hopefully the bar associations in those local or state areas will call them out, if not take their license from them, censor them in some kind of way, because what they did was so unlawful and so undemocratic. Uh, as people have described it, it was an attempt to uh, stage a coup. Imagine that. 81 million people, and nearly 82 million people voted for Joe Biden. And Trump and his people want to come and say, no, let's, despite that, we think we received 8 million fewer votes than, um, than Joe Biden. And in these swing states, we lost those swing states. Despite all of that, we should still be the president. I should still be the president of the United States. That makes no sense, folks. And again, I think people around the world who see that, they have to be shaking their heads and, and wonder, what was this man thinking? Why was he doing this? Well, I think he did it because of his, you know, his ego just would not allow him to uh, entertain the notion that he's a loser. And what was ironic about that is that he kept going to court, losing time after time after time, which made him a multiple loser on multiple times, losing the election, losing the, the popular vote, losing the electoral vote, and losing all these court cases. And many of these court cases were, were handled by people he appointed, people who had R behind their names, not Ds behind their names. And, and you had a, a governor in, in Georgia and a, a secretary of state in Georgia, who have just been raped over the coals unmercifully by Trump and his people. There are people who are calling uh, for him to be uh, voted out of office. Um, you know, and this is somebody, uh, Kemp from Georgia, he is somebody who really owed his uh, election to Donald Trump because he was behind in the polls and then Donald Trump flew in, had a few rallies and got people motivated and they went out and voted for this guy. And, and Kemp became the governor of Georgia. Well, he took an oath. Kemp took an oath to uphold the laws of the, the laws of the state of Georgia and the constitution of the state of Georgia. And the state constitution and the laws of Georgia required him to do exactly what he did was to certify the results of the election. And for simply doing his job, 
the man was raked over the coals by Trump and his his um, his cronies and his acolytes and his sycophants and you know they they just turned on the man and here's somebody who was so he, he I think he worshipped in a way Donald Trump he just believed in Donald Trump he voted for him he owed so much to Donald Trump but he had to do what the state laws required him to do and and by doing so he he became uh, an enemy of, of Donald Trump. And, and the same thing with the Secretary of State, who also voted for Trump and was a big supporter of Trump's. And he certified, he said, we had a fair election. Okay, he is, his name is Mudd also. And then you had um, Mr. Krebs, who was uh, an official with the Department of Homeland Security, who issued a report not long after the election and said there were no issues with fraud or anything. It was a fair election. And he was fired for that. And that was what he, the conclusion, that was his job, was to make that statement. His job was to do the assessment and issue a report. And he issued the report. It just happened to not support the narrative of Donald Trump. But this man knew he was, he, he took an oath of office to work for the people and the Constitution of the United States, not to work for Donald Trump. And I think that's where a lot of people get confused and certainly Trump was confused by that. These people held their hands up and took an oath to the Constitution of the United States, not an oath, a loyalty oath to this one man. They do that in dictatorships. They do that in, in, in places where you know, tyrants and despots, um, strong men, they run that country. And they have to show their loyalty to that person. That's not the way we're supposed to do it in this country. Well, what, what, one of the outcomes of all of this is that it has it sowed the seeds of doubt in the minds of people about, you know, is, is this election process, is this electoral system, is it really fair? And is it one of those things where if I lose then it's not fair. If I win, it is fair. Because if you remember in 2016, after Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump, it wasn't. It was just a few days later, she conceded, and she did not put up a fuss about it. I think there were some people who supported her, complained that some of the, there were some irregularities in the voting, but it never went any place, not to the extent, not nearly to the extent as you see uh, right-wing radio, right-wing television, and, and right-wing uh, politicians, how they are just, um, they're just saying, this, this could not happen. This, this, this thing could not happen the way it turned out. But, you know, as we, as we continue to move down this road, I think one of the things that affects us, and I said earlier that th there's been seeds of doubt planted in the heads and the hearts of people. So much so that I think in Georgia, they're really concerned about whether or not in the runoff, a senator in the two Senate seats, uh, who's going to show up for that? Because there are so many Republican uh, voters out there who still believe that the, um, that the election was rigged. And they're saying, if it was rigged, then it's going to be rigged now. So why even participate in this election? And that's sort of the the creature, the monster that um, Trump and his people have unleashed here. That's that's the sentiment that they have unleashed because it may 
end up biting them because if, if those two Democrats win in Georgia, guess what? Mitch McConnell is no longer Senate Majority Leader. And that can happen. I mean, these, these, these two individuals uh, can end up beating Loeffler and, and Purdue. And that's what, that's the thing that, that really frightens some of these individuals on, on the Republican side. Uh, they just cannot accept the fact that their man lost. You know, they, they see Joe Biden, all the derisive names that you know, Trump had for him, Sleepy Joe. They looked at his rallies and didn't see a whole lot of people there. And, and the reason they didn't, because Biden said, I'm going to respect CDC guidelines and just not hold these big um, virus spreader events as, as Trump did. And uh, so that was that was something that um, we need to keep in mind as well. The other thing that I, I think the impact on people is not just the adults who um, who are being impacted by this, but I think our children are also being impacted by this um, this effort by Trump and his supporters to um, thwart democracy and to be undemocratic in this whole process. And, you know, what, what message are they sending to our young people? Elementary kids, middle school kids, high school kids, all of those people who are observing the behavior of leader, current leadership there in D.C. Uh, you know, we try to teach our kids uh, some uh, character traits, uh, social emotional character traits, if you will, like respect, responsibility, self-awareness. Um, trustworthiness, you know, just being being somebody that others can trust, keeping your word, the golden rule, those, those are traits that we try to instill in our children. Just be, and, and, and don't be a sore loser. We, we like to emphasize that a lot. Don't be a sore loser. If you lose or if you win, there's another day. There's another opportunity for you to be in the fight again and be in the game again. But these kids are being, for those who, I guess parents have to filter some of this stuff for these kids, but you know, I, I don't think they're seeing the best example of, of statesmanship. They're not seeing the best examples of, of, of leadership. They're not seeing the best examples of, of, of positive character traits. When you have people who are constantly berating other people because they don't like them, they they did their job and they get berated for doing their job because you don't like the fact that they did their job the way it was supposed to have been done. And you and you become a whiner, you become a sore loser, and you become, you know, those are the things we want to teach our children. You know, there, there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And if you happen to be the one who lost, just admit that you lost and say, you know, better luck next time. The better... The better person won, or the better team won. The person, who, the the team that was more prepared, won. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means that the other person had a little bit more going for them in that particular contest. So we need to think about the impact that this has on our children, because they are observing, they are taking it in. Um, they they will mimic many times what they see adults doing. You know, if adults are out here saying, uh, lock them up, um, build the wall, 
you know, those kinds of, of, of just really xenophobic kinds of comments. And, and you know, it was the, the, the election was stolen. And, you know, those kinds of, of comments, you know, kids are hearing those, uh, hearing those comments. And they are the future leaders of this country. And what are they thinking? What are they thinking? Not just about leadership, but what are they thinking about just basic human decency? Uh, you can't get your way. What do you do? You, you, you whine. You, you throw a temper tantrum. You start lashing out at people. That's not what we want kids to do. And we, at the highest level, we're seeing people behave in just that way. And thank God, you know, after January 20th, I think we're going to be in an era where we don't have to worry about what is the president going to tweet tomorrow? Who is he going to insult tomorrow? Which senator, which representative, which... Which Supreme Court justice, which world leader is he going to insult today? And I don't, and I'm 100% certain that you're not going to see those kinds of tweets from Joe Biden. We've lived through four years of, of chaos. We've lived through four years of a president who is a narcissist, who's a bully, who's thin-skinned, who has, who's the worst example of leadership uh, that you can think of. And maybe in the business world, um, you know, the idea of transactions versus being transformational. Uh, being transactional was the norm. You do something for me, I do something for you. You quid pro quo. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. And But when you're in government, you're in public service like this, you can't expect people to always operate within that norm. You can't appoint Supreme Court justices and say, now I've, supported, I've appointed you to, just, to a Supreme Court position. Now, in return, you have to do a favor for me. You don't say to people who you just helped to get elect, now that I've helped you get elected, you, you are obligated to rubber stamp everything that, that, that comes, from my, comes from my office, comes across my desk. That's called, um, that's a transaction. And in the business world, maybe that's how people get ahead. They, they say, you, what are you going to do for me? Here's what I'm going to do for you. What are you going to do for me? When you're in public service, you have to do things for the public good. You have to do things because they're right. And, and when, you, when you insert yourself in there and say, I want this for me. I want this for my children. I want this for, for my supporter, my, you know, my close friends. That's wrong. That's not the message we need to, to send to our, our young people. You know, again, respect. How do you... How do you tell a child to be respectful when they hear someone at the national level just saying just all kinds of ugly things about people? Saying that somebody has, is, is low IQ, telling somebody, you know, all these negative things that, that we've heard this man say. And these children are saying, oh, okay, mom and dad and counselors and teachers are telling me I'm supposed to be respectful. But look at the president. He's not being respectful. So who am I supposed to model my life after? Well, hopefully they, the parents have told them, uh, don't model your life after somebody who whines and somebody who's, a, um, again, I keep using that word petulant because that's the best way to describe it. Uh, I think we've all seen at the grocery store checkout aisle where a kid doesn't get what he or she wants and they just throw a temper tantrum in then that becomes uh, an issue because that's what kids do. Kids throw 
temper tantrums. But when we become adults, we should learn that that's not what we need to be doing. And the final thing I'll, I'll mention here is, um, as I think about the, the response to this election, how the, many of the Republicans, not all of them, but many of the Republicans and Donald Trump and others, how they have viewed this post-election uh, result. I, I use the analogy of a football game, but it could be a basketball game. But I want you to think about if you understand football, whether it's at the college, high school level or a professional level, let's say there are two teams playing. And one team is just running up the score, is, is winning everything, is, is just out there winning, and, and the other team is not doing so well. Uh, they're not blocking well. They're not tackling well. They, the coaches are not calling the right plays. They're throwing interceptions. They're getting penalties called on them. And, and both teams are getting penalties called on them. And both teams think that, that the referee has, has uh, made some calls, made some penalty calls that, that are not fair. But that's what they're doing to both sides. Both coaches, both teams think that, oh, that's not fair. You shouldn't be calling a penalty on me. So at any rate, the, the team that loses and the, the, the coach, the coaching staff, the owner, the even some of the commentators, they say this, the game was stolen from us. The game was rigged. These referees just don't like us. And they look at all the penalties they, they threw, and that's what cost us the game. Well, no, what really cost you the game is, is you didn't tackle, you didn't block, you threw too many interceptions, you were outcoached. And, and those penalties... And, you know, when they were called, you just said, oh, man, that's more evidence that they're unfair. Look at, look at them. They're just calling these, these penalties on us. Don't they know that we are the best team out here and we won the game last year, won the big game last year? Why are they treating us this way? And then they, they, they try to appeal that decision from that referee, and they, uh, they go up to the replay booth. And this is analogous to going to the courts and saying, will you please overthrow... Uh, or throw out that decision that the referee just made because we don't think it's fair. Well, the instant replay booth people look at it and say, you know, it was we, the referee called the flag and said it was an interception, and we uh, we uh, our video review shows that it was indeed an interception. So the the call stands, and I think that's what's happening now is that once it goes to the replay booth and people have. You, they recounted, 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 and been certified. And if people are still complaining about the fact that the referee, uh, they think the referee called a bad game and cost them the, the, the victory, no. It was your ineptness. It was the mistakes that you made. It was the fact that you didn't block and tackle and, and run plays the way you were supposed to. That's what cost you. So I, I use that as an analogy of, of, of thinking about how, how the, the post-election uh, narrative has gone, how the response has been. Uh, to me, it's like, again, watching a, an athletic event. Again, it could be basketball, it could be football, or even baseball. When you don't like the outcome, you can say, well, the first quarter, we were leading 3 nothing, and boy, we were winning that game. 
But, you know, just because you're winning 3 nothing in the first quarter doesn't mean you're going to have the lead at the end of the game. And that's what happened here. I think some people said, let's just call the game at the end of the first quarter where we're leading, and that will be the that will be the, the final word on that. Um, I won't take full credit for that little analogy. That was on Saturday Night Live a few, <laughs> last week with the New York Jets. And that was a pretty funny routine little skit they did because the New York Jets have not won a game this year. And there are people who think that the Jets are being treated unfairly, the, the, the pundits and everybody just so unfair uh, to the Jets, even though the Jets are a pretty bad team. Well, I think Donald Trump was a bad candidate. I think he was a bad president. And um, there were flags thrown on him. There were, um, he didn't like some of the, the things that were done. So he, he appealed to the courts. The, and, and court after court after court said, no, you can't do this. this there's, there's no evidence of this. There's no evidence of fraud. And if you're going to come here claiming that, then it, it show us the evidence. And of course, the last um, decision by the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously decided that, or ruled that, uh, there was no relief. They were not going to provide any relief to the plaintiff. These uh, 18 attorneys general and all these U.S. House of Representative members and Ken Paxton from, from Texas. Um, and some people say, well, you know, Alito and, and uh, what's that guy's name? Clarence Thomas, yes. <laughs> Clarence Thomas, uh, they basically said, I, we think they should, have been, they should have been able to file their case. The other seven said, there's nothing here. There's no meat here. There's no, this is frivolous, and we shouldn't even allow them to file. And they, those two justices said um, they should have been allowed to file, but they were not going to give them any relief, which means they were not going to support them. They basically said, go ahead and file your 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 briefs. Go ahead and make your arguments. But let me tell you from from the very beginning, we're not going to support you. Okay, and so that's why I say it was a unanimous decision that it was not going to go anywhere. Well, uh, that's where we are right now. I think the um, the American people have come through something so unprecedented. Hopefully, we will never go through this again. Um, some people say that the the guardrails stayed on even though there were people who were trying to overthrow our democracy, trying to overthrow the will of the people. And, and by, by definition, that's an, that's an attempted coup where you want to throw out millions and millions of votes because you don't think it was fair. When you cannot document, when you cannot prove that, you, that somebody did something illegally or did something fraudulently, Again, I'm repeating myself here, but the Republican judge said, just because you say there's fraud doesn't make it so. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's a summary. That sums up the entire argument. If you're going to claim something was fraud, bring some evidence. You know, you, you, can, you can repeat a lie so many times, and there are definitely people who will start believing that lie. But I just want to say again, Thank God we are moving into a new season in our country, a new era in politics. Um, I want to think that we are waking up from a, a four-year um, bad dream, nightmare, and we're going to move forward. Uh, part of me 
wants that, but there's another part of me that says it's going to be hard to get there. I think the damage that the last four years have uh, that's happened to our country is going to take maybe more than four years. Maybe it'll take another election to really straighten it out because we still have 70-some-odd million people who thought that another four years of chaos and narcissism and bigotry and racism, all those things, we need four more years of that. And that's the thing that's frightening is that there are people who would rather elect somebody who is thin-skinned, who's a bully, who who's a racist, and say, we want four more years of that, versus Biden, who is not a liberal, he's a moderate, uh, and say, you know, we, we rather have this this bigot, this xenophobe, and this racist as our president, uh, rather than somebody who who's a moderate. And, and those 70-some-odd million people are out there, and they are... You know, I, I wish I could, I wish some of them could just simply tell me what is it that they found so attractive about this man, the first time or this time. What was it about him that made you say, yeah, this is, this is exactly what America needs. Um, I just don't see it. At any rate, that's my uh, episode for this podcast today. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. I have some uh, other programs coming up. Uh, I have a one of my current, more recent podcasts, was, or episodes of my podcast, was a, a, a conversation I had with Reverend Damon Fralin from St. John United Methodist Church in Houston, where we talk about the intersection of race and religion. And we're going to have part two of that at some point, and we're going to hopefully bring his, his wife, um, the Reverend Danielle Fralin, into that discussion um, to talk more about race and religion. And I also have uh, a recorded interview and conversation with Ms. Andrea Ledwell, who, who in our discussions about white, white privilege and white supremacy, uh, providing her perspectives as a white woman about how she sees systemic racism and white privilege in our country. I think you, you will want to listen to those, you'll want to hear those. And, and perhaps that would generate some um, some thoughts, maybe generate some action. So let's let's see. And this that may be the last one that I do for the the year, and may just take a couple of weeks off for the holidays and and start back up in January. Uh, but we'll we'll play it by ear. You know, I'm retired now. I I have time at home. I have time to to sit here in my little studio and pontificate and uh, call on friends and, and colleagues who don't mind sharing their thoughts with me. And I, I've got lots of, of good programs coming up first of the year and in all of 2021. So that's it for today. I want to thank you for tuning in. Have a good holiday and Merry Christmas. Goodbye. <music>